Welcome to Live in Air Podcast, your fortnightly show with interviews and insights on meditation, mindfulness, and consciousness. This podcast is brought to you by liveinthere.com, and I'm your host, Giovanni Dinstman. This is episode number five, and I'm interviewing Guillaume Guterro, an entrepreneur, green activist, energy healer, and tantric meditator. Between 2008 and 2013, Guillaume was the co-founder and CEO of Totsi, the second largest website in the US dedicated to moms and tots, and was elected by Forbes as one of the top 100 most promising private US companies. He has been featured on a variety of media outlets, including Fox News, CNN, and CBS. Unhappy with the direction of his life, Guillaume stepped down from the position of CEO of his company and traveled Asia extensively for one year learning and meditating with masters of different traditions. He was trained in Sufi healing massage and Reiki in the holy city of Dharamsala. He practiced 10 days of silent Vipassana meditation in Bodhigaya, the city where the Buddha reached enlightenment. In Nepal, a Tibetan healing master instructed Guillaume on the power of Tibetan healing bowls. He now provides coaching services and mindfulness training to leaders and corporations. In this episode you will learn how to do tantric meditation, the value of surrender, and how long does it take to distress with meditation. Hi, Guillaume. How are you feeling today? Very good. Thank you. So can you just tell us of your journey as an entrepreneur and then going into meditation and healing? I uh, graduated from a vet school, veterinary school, originally in France, you know, almost 15 years ago. I started my first company as I was at the vet school. So, you know, I was kind of an entrepreneur, I would say, from the beginning. I did work in other big companies, but over the years, I created around four companies. Here in the US, I arrived 10 years ago, I created two companies, but before that in UK and in France. And I've been back and forth between being an entrepreneur and the CEO of my own company and running big companies, I would say corporation, you know, I have a traditional office job. 10 years ago, in fact, when I arrived in the U.S., so I had a very busy job. I was working for a luxury French company in retail, and I was a CEO, so, you know, very busy and big team, and I was traveling a lot all across the U.S., taking a plane almost every day. So it was a very intense uh, job, and I had this job for over three, four years. So at that time, I was trying to find a way to uh, reduce my stress level. I had a lot of anxiety. I think it's my baseline to have anxiety when I'm stressed. It's trying to find ways without taking pills and without just drinking alcohol, I could just reduce that stress. I started by doing yoga and I met my, my yoga teacher at the time who became my medita- meditation teacher later on and I started meditation too. It kind of came of just a need, I would say. I was like, okay, you know, I need to do something to distress. And the traditional social life that everybody was having, I realized was kind of at the dark side where, you know, oh, you might feel good in the evening if you go out after you feel really, you know, crap and you're more tired and you're more exhausted. So I was trying to find something that could, you know, be better than that. As you started meditation and yoga, did you feel immediate relief to stress or did it take a while for the distressing to take place? No, it was quite immediate, I would say. You know, I remember the first time I did yoga, I came out of it almost like tingles. I mean, tingling in my hands and my feet. 
I was feeling like almost like electricity. I was just feeling energy so much in my body. And despite it was uh, challenging physically a little bit, not very flexible. Mm. So, you know, touching my feet with my hand and that kind of stuff is usually impossible for me. <laughs> uh, despite the whole challenge of the practice, I felt amazing. My eyes were more open. And I remember, you know, my girlfriend at the time, I came back home and she was like, oh my God, your eyes are like shiny. Mm. So there was something that I immediately felt and I really loved the yoga practice for that and the meditation. The meditation at yoga at that time, was it more like uh, repeating mantras or staying with the breath? What was the technique? It was staying with the breath and in the body. So it was, you know, at the end of meditation, my, my teacher does a long yoga class around an hour and a half to two hours. So we have a long, a good 20 minutes meditation at the end. You know, traditionally, a meditation and yoga are entangled together. They're part of the same practice. Now it's very separated. We used to practice yoga in order to be able to sit in a good meditation posture and also to open energy flowing through the body so we could have better meditation. I always did that at the end and that meditation was really focusing and feeling your body after such an intense practice. Did you also do some pranayama practice? We did a little bit of that, not at the beginning when I started, but later on, you know, three, four years later, as I was practicing yoga, I tried different type of yoga, different type of meditation, breathing exercise. So I did some pranayama exercise, yes. But my classical training is in keeping the natural breath and focusing on that rhythm of the natural breath. You brought meditation and yoga into your life. And then what happened next? I started a new business in 2008, 2009 with a friend of mine to do a, a company that would sell a baby product so online retail business and we start that together and within um, three years that company became really big so we had over you know 150 employees within three years uh, we raised over 45 million dollars for this company wow growth was really quick you know we got uh, around three million customers within three years you know, we went from an idea together to uh, a big company. I mean, it was a startup, but, you know, a startup that was very big. And that company grew fast and, you know, it was, you know, challenging and exciting at the same time. You know, I was traveling a lot again to fundraise for my company, managing a big team. And my stress level was kind of back up. And I was doing less meditation at the time. I almost stopped yoga at the time because I was getting busy, you know, and it's kind of the thing that everybody does. Oh, I don't have time for meditation in the morning, you know. I don't have time for yoga because I have too much to do. And in fact, at the time, we need the practice the most. Like everybody, you know, I dropped the practice to focus more on work. And I arrived to a, a tipping point in 2012 where I was extremely tired, extremely stressed. The company was doing well still, but, you know, it was a lot of pressure a lot of people involved in this company, I felt I was off track, you know, and it's interesting because a lot of people I work with, they are successful people, you know, by criteria of society. They have mm -hmm. a good job, they make money, you know, they might have a house, a few houses, etc. But somehow there's a deeper call inside that's telling us this is not it. I felt I was not doing the right thing in my life. Like maybe I was successful, but it was not where I should be. Mm. You know, I was a veterinarian, I was an entrepreneur, I worked for a big company, an entrepreneur again, so I did a lot of things already in my life, and I was not 100% sure, I didn't really know what to do. So I was like, you know what, the best way to know is to take some distance. 
is to silence my mind. And I know that by my practice, I'm not going to find it by just thinking more, by doing more exercise and putting more stuff in my brain. So, okay, I was like, let's take some distance. So I decided to step down from my role as a CEO of the company. So I replaced myself with someone else. I went traveling for a year on a spiritual journey. Uh, that was, you know, an extraordinary adventure where I found first, you know, my call, but I also refined my balance and my center. I spent a year doing volunteering and spiritual practices. So it was the goal was to give back. Uh, so I went to India for a good chunk of the time for four months. Then I went to Nepal for two months. Then I went to Sri Lanka for one month. Then I went to the Philippines for one month. Then I went to Thailand for a month. Wow. Indonesia and Bali. And I finished at the end of the year, I spent the new year in Israel. So that was the whole journey. And, and the goal of that whole journey was to go and meet people at the most holy place on the planet. And that's why I wanted to end by Jerusalem. I was a Christian. I'm not, you know, practicing the Christian religion, but it was my upbringing. And I was like, you know, I want to see that at the end after going to the most uh, holy Hindu sites, Buddhist sites in India and in Nepal. So what happened after this one year of pilgrimage, of exploration and meeting these masters? What is the big change if you could put in one word or sentence? One word, I would say surrender. Surrender. There is something in our life, uh, in the Western world especially, where we want to control everything. You know, we believe that things are happening in our life because we take charge of them. And we've been educated at school and through our parents and through the system that what we get outside is what we decide. And there's only this, there's one reality, you know, out there. It's a very materialistic way. It forgets, you know, other things like what was that sensation that I had when I was unhappy? You know, there was something inside me that was telling me go in many ways. There was a sign in my life that was telling me go. So that travel, you know, first when you travel to a very poor country like India, you know, where poverty is, is nothing like the U.S. where I live, and you see people that are very little, almost nothing, and are very happy, mm -hmm. present. Their smile and their eyes don't lie. You know, I worked in uh, Kolkata for a month and a half. So it was the first center that Mother Chiriza opened, and her goal was to go in the street and find people that were dying and bring them in clean them and change them so they could die with dignity. Her goal was like nobody should die like an animal, you know, on the street, on the pavement. People should die in a bed. So I walked that center for a month and a half and it was extremely challenging in some aspects, but so rewarding. I got so much by giving little I felt to those people that were at the end of their life. I also worked in slums, you know, in Kolkata is one of the largest slums on the planet. And it's built, you know, on the sewage system of the city. So it's, you know, you can imagine how dirty and, and how it is. But when I arrived there, and I was afraid, you know, if I go with my camera, if I go with some kind of valuables, you know, things on me, people would just go to me and try to steal stuff. And, and I arrived and I was just seeing families and people running around and laughing and kids playing and little schools with kids inside and they were just listening to the teacher who's not moving and listening to the teacher for like hours, you know, like we don't see any kids doing that in the Western <laughs> world. And nobody was asking me money. And in fact, if you were to sit on the floor somewhere and look at the people and someone was next to you and eating or having something, that person would look at you and say, do you want some? That, that person that had nothing and that only me or that person would offer you to share it with you. That completely changed my perspective, wow. you know, on many, many things. 
And why I say surrender, because there is something about surrendering and just letting things happen. But when you are in the right place, in the right energy, that manifestation in your life of good things happen in a very different way. And that sounds a little bit hairy, you know, like, well, it's like the secret thing, you know, like just think about something and materialize. But I experience it. If I'm in that right place and I can really make those things happen. It doesn't mean you don't work. It doesn't mean you don't wake up. Obviously, if you stay in your bed all day and, you know, just watching TV all day, not much going to happen in your life. But there is something almost effortless. Hmm. I think you touched an interesting point there because surrender is one of the key concepts of spirituality in the East. And it doesn't mean a passive resignation that, okay, things happen like this. I shouldn't do anything. I should just accept. It is just an understanding that there is only so much we can do and we are responsible for our actions, but not for the results of the actions. There's something else that takes care of the results of the actions. And by accepting what life brings, we are more happy, we are more open, and we're actually even more empowered to change the things that need to be changed. Yes, we are, you know, we are always in the goal and not in the journey. Okay, if I get this house or if I get this job or if I get that type of relationship, or if I get a kid, or if I get whatever, you know, people are dreaming of any material good, that's going to make me feel happy. I mean, it does on a very short time, you know, that's true if you buy a very nice car and you wanted a car all your life, probably you're going to be feel very happy for a month or two months, three months, until a better car passes by and I'm like, I, I think I want this one now, <laughs> it looks mm. much, much better. Or you guys are going to break down anyway, as any material things do at some point. And so it's one thing to say it, but I think that feeling went deeper down in me. I had an intellectual understanding because I did a lot of spiritual retreats and that. I understand those concepts, but I don't think I was living them at a deeper level, like feeling them. Practice of meditation is really about that at the end of the day. It's getting into your body and in tune with it and listen to it. Our body cannot talk, you know, it cannot tell us, like, it cannot be like someone speaking. So when there's something wrong, it makes us feel uncomfortable. It makes us feel stress. It makes us feel pain in the back. It makes us pain in our belly. That's a way of the body to tell, listen, there's something going wrong there in your life. And if we can learn to listen to that and tune into it, we can even know, you know, when we meet someone, if it's good for our business. When we're in a relationship, like uh, with a friend, to know, you know, how we can serve better, how we can help better people because we can connect with them in a much deeper level. And I use it a lot with my meditation students. And I always have to remind myself because, listen, I'm 41 years old and I've been trained differently for so long that my mind takes over a lot of time. But I always have to remember to tap into the silence. So when they ask me a question, not answering, can I take a deep breath and wait and feel first the answer before starting talking? And the answer is so different. It seems irrational for our Western mind in many ways. It's not natural at all for us. So despite I teach and despite I learn it, you know, I always have to practice it to, to grow on that path. That's for sure. I think people feel uncomfortable with those pauses. We expect like immediate response. So if you pause, it's like, what's going on? Did, did he understand what I said? It's true. You're right. She's born from that silence. I do silent retreats a lot, um, like 10 days retreats where I don't speak for 10 days. I'm alone and, and there's no human contact, I would say. I get the best insights on my life in those retreats. I get more than sitting and answering 50 questions on what do I like, what's my passion. I'm not saying those exercises are bad. I just think that we don't get to the core of really who we are. 
And so we are always in that mental place where we cannot trust the mind. You know, we, we learn stuff, we've been wounded, people hurt us. And so our mind has been built, you know, in a very protective way to protect us. Is not built ready to give us the maximum potential. I feel I want to do something, but it's a mental process. I know I cannot trust my mind completely. I know it's based not only on things I like, but also a lot on the fears I have. So the only way to remove that is to get out of it and to feel. You know, I know people that have big jobs and use their mind all day long. And when they start doing meditation a little bit, you can see and they tell you how transformative it is so quickly that they never thought there was this. You know, it's so unnatural for us, but it's there in everyone all the time. Looking at your biography here, I see that in this trip that you went, you, you were with Sufi masters, Vipassana teachers, and also Tibetan monks. Did you feel that all of these masters from different traditions, they have something in common? Are their messages much different? No, it's the same message. It's the same message, you know. They're all brothers to me. Uh, Altaf, who is my, uh, my Sufi teacher, quite an incredible man and he has done a lot of things in his life uh, one of them being to to walk for three years in India across the road of India to do a walk for peace every day walking across all the country which is like a continent just for peace but he's a Sufi master and there's very few of them left one day he told me you know I was talking about the Hindu side I've been and I saw him at, at the end of my trip in India, so I already gone to Varanasi, which is the most holy place for Hindu people. And I went to Bodh Gaya, which is the most holy place for Buddhists. I met him in Dharamsala, which is this, you know, Indian city, which is more Tibetan than Indian because Dalai Lama lives there and you know, a lot of Tibetans are living there in exile. He asked me about Christianity and, you know, if I ever go to church and things like that. And I told about God and, you know, Jesus Christ and things like that. And he was like, well, at the end of the day, you know, it's the same God. We just give it a different name. But it's the same one. He said, it's like water. You know, you could call water. We say O in French. And I think in Hindu, I think it's Pani, if I remember correctly. But it's the same water, even if we use three different names. You know, it's going to quench your thirst in the same way. If you're thirsty, you drink that water, however you call it is going to work the same in your body. Hmm. So you mentioned also that you have meditation students that, that you teach meditation. Can you talk a little yes. bit about the work you do and the type of practice that you teach? I was trained in one of the oldest techniques of meditation, which is a tantric Shivism practice, which is the original of the first scripture in India where tantric scriptures which have nothing to do with the sex-tantric thing that people are talking about now. And I'm glad you say uh, that because even if you type in Google tantric, all you see is a kind of sex meditation and, and other things like this. Exactly. So I'm sure we got a lot of people now listening to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sorry to cut the buzz on that, but tantric is basically an energy meditation. We focus on the energy and it's based on the recognition that we are energy being before being physical beings. And that energy is flowing and moving inside us all the time. Our thoughts are energy. Our breath is energy. You know, our heart that's beating, you know, organs and everything that's moving in, in our body and, you know, any activities, you know, every cell is pulsating, etc. And even at the core of the tantric scriptures, what's very interesting is that they go to the molecular level, you know, smaller level 
and they say that we are in every cell, there's just atoms and they don't call them atoms, but this is one thing with something running, turning around like the electrons. Tiny smaller particles, the scriptures are 6,000 years old, and they say that at the end, those particles, when we look very close, they are just tiny bits of energy that are pulsating. It's a pulsation, which is quite interesting because, you know, quantum physics, you know, today, in the last five to 10 years, are kind of starting to say the same thing. So those masters spend so much time looking inside, so much time looking deep and feeling that they were able to fine tune their vision and say, this is what I see. So the meditation that we use is based on going back in touch with that pulsation. And that pulsation, we can call it life, we can call it consciousness, we can call it our higher self, we can call it God, that's how you know they use it. They use the term Shiva, but mm -hmm. not Shiva as in Hinduism, as this God and the guy with multiple arms, but Shiva as the energy, you know. And they talk about in the scripture, by the way, of the Big Bang and what was before that. They say it was a field of energy that contracted and it contracted and it created form, it creating matters, which is very close to the idea of the Big Bang in many ways. I really love it. I mean, I have a scientific background and I really like that practice. What I like also, it's a very easy one because it's accessible to anyone. It doesn't require a lot of training. It's not easy like any meditation practice. You need to do it. It's like, you know, bicycle. If you don't bike and you just read about bicycles, and it's going to be hard to bike. But it's pretty easy. And we use some, some mantras also. We have a few mantras that we can use to kind of settle the mind at the beginning of the meditation. But we don't use it during the whole meditation process. The goal being very silent with our mind very quickly. So you use the mantra more in the beginning just to calm it down? My teacher is like launching a rocket. Mantra is a launch pad, you know, and we're using it for it. But once we're in that space over there, there's no mind. And that's a little bit the problem of most mantra techniques like TM, uh, Transcendental Meditation, or others that we believe in at least, they kind of bring you somewhere, they can be very relaxing, but they are a wall at some point because mm. you cannot be on the mind and the goal is to go to our intimate nature and it's like before we are born or when we sleep completely and we have no dreams, you know, we're still there. So we're trying to expand that. What is it? When the mind completely stops, we're still somewhere, you know, but where are we? So we're trying to expand something that's beyond, you know, below the mind, below the body, and below all that. No, I'm 100% with you there. I, I feel many types of meditation that are popular nowadays, they're all beneficial because they give you relaxation, but some of them stay at the relaxation level. And that's fine as well. We also need that. We live a life with so much stress and anxiety that even that relaxation, that kind of open relaxation already is so beneficial for us. But at the same time, meditation can take you much deeper. The goal is to truly understand yourself beyond and behind the mind. Yeah, and you're right. And there is no wrong path at the end of the day. We don't believe, you know, anybody has its own path and using a mantra, not using this kind of detail. But I think the intent is more important. You know, why were we doing it? You know, you can use a knife with an intent to cut your food and you can use a knife to kill someone. So meditation, you know, is very useful. If you say, okay, my intent is to reduce stress, to reduce anxiety, it's going to be very useful. But it can be also somehow an ego practice to gain more power. You know, I need to work more, deliver even more in my life, sleep even less, and meditation can give you that. But is the intent right? I don't think so. That's sometimes I'm really worried, you know, when I read, we read a lot about mindfulness at the moment, New York Times and all the big newspaper and meditation, but very often 
it's missing the ground of it, you know, the intent behind it. And it could be a wrong intent. You know, you can really use it, you know, for the wrong things. You know, then we're not going to solve society problems. We're not going to solve, you know, our real problem as communities if we do it for more power, which we have enough of that, I think, right now on the planet. Hmm. And that's often, you know, corporations are doing it to reduce stress for productivity a lot, for delivering more. And there's nothing wrong. I don't think they should not do it. We don't want people to be stressed. We want people to be both performer. But in a true tradition and in the real intent, it should be also, are we more happy? deeply happy and that doesn't go through being more productive all the time do you feel that the way mindfulness and meditation is being marketed nowadays you think it can lead people astray or can be dangerous or you think it's mostly just like a stepping stone for them to get to know more about meditation if they're interested i won't say dangerous i think it would put people on a path it's better than no path being lost somewhere and being in suffering all your life I think people that really are ready to transform themselves and to serve others more, they'll get a taste through any kind of meditation and they probably then look for the right teachers, the right school, the right practice. They would have to deepen their practice in their own way and they might not go through those places that are more popular and more fashionable right now. Because some say, we're made of the same stuff. What I feel inside, what I know I am, it's anybody feels it and knows it. It's just forgot about it. So any practice that can silence the mind a little bit is going to make you listen to that a little bit more. So I do hope and I feel that at any moment, those people are going to be a little bit more in touch with who they are anyway. And so maybe the intent they came in was different. It was to reduce anxiety, sleep better, nothing wrong with that. And that's very efficient for that. But then they're going to start questioning, okay, what am I doing in my life? Am I in the right job? Is it really the type of company I want to work with? Am I having the right type of relationship with the person I'm living with? Am I kind to my kids in the best way? Can I serve them better? So I think those questions are arising as we practice because those practices reveal something that's universal and that's about not being better than the others. It's about connection with the others. It's not about, you know, being stronger, it's about surrendering to what we really are, you know, even our flaws and even our shadows. So we're kind of moving up again, but complete with everything, with all our shadows. You know, we have a tendency in society to, when we do all those positive thinking trainings or some type of meditation, which is we kind of want to forget about the bad stuff, shadows or fears. We're layering it with some kind of mental training and we can wire the brain very well for that. But we move up scattered. We move up only with part of us. Because our shadows are there, our fears are there anyway. The only way we can really rise up is to move everything up. You know, Brené Brown talks about vulnerability a lot and great teacher for that. But we are not very good at being vulnerable. I can tell you being in the executive sphere for so long and being in a CEO roles and a guy, there's no way you can be weak. Mm. No, you know way you can talk about your failures. There's no way you can cry. There's no way you can have doubt. And that's what we need. Because if not, we ask people to be Superman. And Superman doesn't exist. You know, bad news. You know, we cannot be Superman. Hmm. You know, it's challenging. You know, if we build a society like that, I feel. It's, it's, and it's risky. And you see the sequels on TV and everywhere. Hmm. At the same time, I feel that people that go to meditation with an idea of escaping their own shadows and their own fears... I think sooner or later they'll be disappointed because the moment that you quiet your mind, 
guess what? All those fears, they come up, they, you don't have any distraction. They will come up little by little and then and then you feel all oh, my meditation is not so good because I, I'm, I'm actually feeling bad. No, but there's a lot of things inside of you that need to come up. And if they don't come up, how are they going to disappear? How are they going to transform? Very true. You know, I've often uh, new students that come that have practiced meditation through different techniques or try on their own with an app on their iPhone or video on YouTube and stuff like that. One of the main things I get as a comment is like, when they came to a course, to a training, they're like, I can't stop my mind. I've been trying, but my mind is always going on and I can't silence it. And I always tell them, well, we're not trying to silence the mind. We're trying to not be entangled with it and to be distant. So you can watch it. So it, do, it does its stuff. But if you try to stop your mind, you know, it's not going to happen because the brain is wired in a way where it's still going on. Yeah, it's going to take years and years of practice. It's going to be more silent for sure. But the thoughts process, as long as you're alive, is happening. So they kind of disappoint in the beginning. Say, oh my God, I can't stop it. So then they, they realize that through the practice, they can be very present in life. They can be very active. We can have a lot of things going on. Yet they can be present in a very different way when anything is happening. Any high and lows don't really bring you up and down all the time. You're not completely entangled with it. And that's a practice. The practice is not in the meditation room or on the yoga mat. The practice is in relationship, you know, in life with friends at work. That's where we're practicing. It's easy to be silent on a silent retreat for 10 days like I'm doing. I can be silent. But can I be more silent when people are talking around me and I want to say something? Can I hold that more than I used to? That's a challenge. That's a practice. That's a yoga. By the way, the yoga is the yoga of life. All yoga teacher in India tells you, Get out of the ashram, get off your yoga mat, go live your life and practice there. Not by putting your feet on the wall. I'm not saying it's not good, but it's not true yoga. The true yoga is being married with someone. The true yoga is, you know, being at work with people that are difficult. True yoga is to raise your child when they are screaming at you and you want to throw them by the window, but you can't. That's yoga. Mm. <laughs> you know? That's when it's showing up. And exactly. that's when the price is very serving. Yeah. The retreats are super useful and either living a period of time like solely devoted to this like you did in your trips i think it's very very useful to kind of deepen the practice and take it to another level but unless you take it to your daily life unless your meditation is also relevant when you're having a discussion with your partner or when you're being shouted at by by a friend or or whatever if that doesn't happen then your meditation practice is just staying on the cushion and it's not enough 100 agree so you were talking about the tantric meditation. I don't know a lot about tantric meditations. Could you briefly explain for our listeners how we can practice tantric meditation? Sure. Basically, there's a four steps template where you can go into that practice. Uh, the first one is uh, to get into your body, so to sit in meditation, you know, to have a comfortable position, to, to get into your body, so feel your body, your seat bones you know, on the floor, Straighten your spine, position well your hands, your arms, uh, your head, relax, facial muscles. So that's step one. The step two is to witness that breath that's going on all the time. Well, I've been talking with you for, I don't know, 30 minutes or 40 minutes. I've been thinking, oh my God, I should breathe, you know, that's going on all the time. So we're not trying to do pranas, you know, and like, deep inhale or deep exhale, you know, we're not trying to change what's going on. So we're trying to observe that pulsation of life that's going on in our body. We're just witnessing it. 
which we never do. Pay attention to that breath that's going on all the time and that keep us alive. We're looking at that and we can look at the mind and say, hey, we might have thoughts and they might arise. And we see them as energy, like the breath, energy pulsation. So the thoughts will arise like a wave and we go down back. They are going to continue. Those are energy. We're an energy being. So that's going to bubble. It's going to bubble to the surface and, and come into your mind. And the third step is like, okay, we use either a mantra, which could be the natural breast mantra. Uh, so tantric teachers consider that when we breathe, you know, the breath makes a natural noise if you can listen to it. And that's a natural mantra. And that mantra is going on all the time, either we know it or not. That's a natural breast mantra. It makes that little hum song when, when we inhale and sa when we exhale. So it's like hum sa. So if you breathe, you know, without forcing your breath and you close your eyes in the silence, you can hear a little bit of that noise. It's the sound of the air passage, you know, through your throat and through your nose. It makes that little noise all the time. It's considered, you know, a very powerful mantra because that's a mantra we sing all the time since we are born. And it never stops. So we look in that mantra. We can use, we use different other type of mantras. And then we go below that. That's step four where we go into that awareness, that ultimate state that's a vibration that's here under the thoughts, under the breath. You know, there's a presence there that's always there and we can, when we go deeper under the breath, we can see that something is watching there. There's a consciousness, there's an awareness, there's an awareness that's looking at the thoughts, there's an awareness looking at the breath and there's a presence there. The tantric meditation and the techniques we use are very experiential. You know, the teacher can tell you stuff, but at the end of the day, we want people to experience it. You know, it's not about reading a book. Yeah, you can say you're going to feel this and that. Everybody's going to experience that because what we made of. So we're trying to experience that energy that's pulsating, that ocean that's under the wave that we are. Before we were form, you know, and the universe was created, there was just energy there and then it contracted into form. And we believe we are a production of that mini universe. You know, we're into form right now and you know, we can do a lot of stuff and we have a limited time on earth for that. But there's something inside that's deeper and that's pulsating that light. We don't know what it is. You know, we don't know when the cells organize in an embryo at what point that's coming in. When that first pulsation of the heart is starting, what is beating it ready? So we're trying to observe that and to go deeper. Some people experience very vast infinite space, some people experience love, some people experience a lot of lights, some people experience, you know, a lot of different things. It's all what we call Shakti, which is energy. And some people are going to move, you know, some people are going to start bouncing a little bit. Sometimes I see first time big people and the first time and you can see they are bouncing like monks a little bit like this. They don't even know about it. So that's energy moving. They are in their energy body. And then they come back and they open their eyes and they're like, where was I? I think for 10 minutes I was gone. What happened? I had a student the other day, first time, and I could see it during the, the class. So he was moving a lot. He had a lot of pain in his legs. He was moving around. And then at some point, he was so still. He had a beautiful posture. He was just like very, very present. I could feel that. The eyes closed. He was gone for like 10 minutes. Then he came back. And at the end, we were doing, you know, at the end of the sessions, and we were doing a debriefing. And I say, how was it? And say, I don't know what happened to me. I think I was gone somewhere. Anybody can experience that because that's what we are. You know, so we're guiding people into what is there. We're not trying to create a new state. 
It's not like, okay, we lost that peace of mind and we need to recreate it. We're not trying to create or bring anything new. Meditation is removing stuff to discover what's under, what's there, what's always been there. Every heartbeat that we have makes us breathe, makes us digest, makes us being aware, makes us listen right now or poke. All that is there's something behind and that's, that's force, that energy that we're trying to witness. I like that framework, how it starts with the most obvious in our consciousness, which is the body. And step by step, it moves to the most subtle, which is consciousness. It's an interesting way to guide the attention. Yeah, it's a different level of body. In our Western system, we have one body, there's one of them, you know. In the scriptures, there's four levels. And this is just the grosser level, to so the apparent level of the body. But there's deeper levels of the bodies and energies under, and we can tap into it. And once again, you know, what I really find fascinating is that science today is kind of confirming all those things that those people have been observing. They were not scientists, or they were, I would say, scientists of the mind, scientists of energy by observation, which is what a lot of scientists do. They observe and then they write and say, that's what we saw in a telescope. That's what they saw inside. They just didn't have the fancy tools we have now, but they, they were scientists of the mind, of the soul, in a way. Yeah, which was probably more helpful because when you don't have the tools, then, you know, you have to go in those sensation and feelings. And that's what the practice is about. We try to find consciousness and people are trying, you know, scientific of the brain. And a lot of people are trying to find where is that? Even, you know, you know memories, we, we know there's areas of the brain that store memories, but we don't know how they are popping back. Like if right now I tell you, okay, think of a sunset bomb in your brain you see sunset it's instantaneous if we do a CD scan we can see where it's happening but we don't know where this image was a second ago right before i ask you it's not somewhere mm. there's not a place in your brain where that sunset is, is really specifically restored there's an activity surging in your brain to create that and say hey here's what it looks like they've been looking and there's not one place in the brain for consciousness that's fascinating because that's kind of, yeah, what they say, it's not there. It's not up there. I've been know? reading about this. They're looking everywhere in the brain, trying to find where the I is, where, where the ego, the sense of being a person, an individual, where is it? And they cannot find it. And that's quite interesting because the Buddha and, and other masters in the East, they also looked inside looking for an identity and, and they didn't find it. They found that they are consciousness. They didn't find that they are like one small identity sitting somewhere inside their head. So. Yeah, and you expand that infinite space. You know what all those masters told me, like the Sufi or the Hindus or the Buddhist, even Christian mystic. When I, I read a lot of Christian mystic texts and they are very interesting, they say the exact same thing. I mean, those guys never met. It's mm. not like they were raised in the same country. They wrote texts at a very different time, at a time where, you know, there was no internet, so they don't know what the other guys were saying. They say the exact same thing. They use different words. You know, they were born in a different place. The infinity, that infinite power, the fact that we are love, the fact that God, you know, we call it God, you know, some people are a bit hairy when we use that name or we call it consciousness, whatever, is inside us and we are made of it. You know, we are in it all the time. They're all saying that, all of them. And by the way, a lot of those religions were born to people that were experiencing it. Buddha, in his own enlightenment experience, all the Sufi masters, you know, even in the Kabbalah, there were mm. people that were reflecting on and expanding. All those people were doing meditation, all of them, yes. in different ways. But they were all meditating, all of them. Yes. 
As we're approaching the end of our show, I wanted to ask you if you could travel back in time and meet the old version of yourself, maybe 10 years ago or so, in the beginning of your journey, what advice would you give yourself? Relax. Everything's going to be fine. <laughs> I would think relax more. We so much wants to make things happen and we're so worried about the future because society is very designed that way. Turn on TV. It's all about worries and fears and what you'd be worried about, you know, the climate and finance and financial collapse, pollution, everything, you know, it's just everything you should be worried about, wars and all that. Doesn't mean it's not happening, but we really build our way. In fact, I realized, you know, everything connects so well when I look back on my path. Even the worst, what I call the worst moments, was the most difficult moments, those moments right before surrendering, when you're on your knees, those mm -hmm. moments were so full of light. They were the moments that gave me the most. I mean, I would not be here, I would not be teaching, I would have never taken that trip. It's hard to imagine that, but yeah, I would say relax. Just don't worry, it's all okay. It's all been taken care of. <laughs> mm. There you go, that's a nice way to end this show. And if people want to know more about you, where would they go? They can go on my blog, it's guillaumegodfro.com. It's like super long, free on the show notes, and people can go there and have a, a website for my healing practice and meditation, which is restoringbalanceinmylife.com. All right, I'll put those in the show notes. Thank you. Thank you very much for your presence today and for sharing your, your life story and your learnings. And we catch up later. Thank you very much for being here. Okay, thank you so much, Giovanni. Have a great day. You can find the show notes for this episode with all the links, names, and resources mentioned at liveandair.com. If this is your first time listening, thank you for coming. We bring a great variety of guests from all walks of life and practitioners of different meditation techniques, so be sure to stick around. Please subscribe via your favorite RSS feed or iTunes. And if you have learned something valuable today, it would mean a lot to me if you leave a comment. You can follow me on Twitter at geo underscore self. And as usual, we end it with a quote. This quote is from Deepak Chopra. Meditation is not a way of making your mind quiet. It's a way of entering into the quiet that's already there, buried under 50,000 thoughts the average person thinks every day. <laughs>